Ladies and gentlemen, it is December 28th, 2021, and this is a very special New Year's or approaching New Year's edition of your weekly dose of sanity, The Prevailing Narrative. Um, Coming up shortly, I'm going to be interviewing a gentleman named Craig Sanders. Craig is an attorney, former Air Force pilot, and more than that, he's just a guy. But he also, on the internet, happens to have become one of the go-tos for a lot of people on COVID data analysis. Um, Lots of doctors and public health officials follow him, and a lot of people have found him to be one of the better sources on interpreting, on, on, on sifting out and searching for a bit of a bloodhound on the internet to understand and project what's going on with COVID through its many phases over the last couple years. And the reason why I wanted to speak with Craig specifically, as opposed to an epidemiologist or a public health official or of a journalist is goes to really one of the kind of foundational elements of why I'm doing this podcast is understanding how you search for information, interpret it, and understand what's the information environment around you and why that's been so misleading for a lot of people. And a lot of people have found it kind of the the ice below their feet a little thin where they used to be able to really take a lot of solace in having lots of good sources that the news was being thorough and honest. They know deep down that they don't feel that way anymore, but they don't know where to turn. And to a certain extent, some of the responsibility now goes on you. A person has to be able to look to multiple sources, ingest information from multiple sources, synthesize it, and come up with conclusions. And part of what Craig and I will do in our discussion, because it's what he does, and to a certain extent, what I do with a lot of my, my commentary and my content on the internet, is do just that. Is, okay, since we don't have someone doing all the work for us, how do we search out information from across the, the really fragmented information environment? Use it to to spot patterns, understand data, see where there's flaws, and see particularly the the institutional sources, whether it's the media or public health sources. And Craig and I get into a lot of the flaws with how the CDC has presented data information. How do you spot these flaws and how do you get past them? So I think it's a really interesting discussion. It goes to the core of what I'm trying to do with this podcast um, and hope you enjoy it. And we'll also get into a lot of the hard and fast uh, data analysis of our current situation and what we can be looking at from Omicron um, as we kind of exit the holiday season and how much longer is this going to last and what, what are we staring at? Um, so on to some topics here. Back in the news, he's hard to kill, ladies and gentlemen, or at least from a media perspective. Donald J. Trump is back in the news, uh, hosted The Apprentice, ex-president, former co-host of This Morning, what was it, Live with Kelly Ripa? I don't know, everyone seems to forget. Donald Trump co-hosted that morning show. He, he was a stand-in for Ryan Seacrest and hosted a couple episodes, I believe, with Kelly Ripa. I think we need the oral history of that. Anyone who knows Kelly, let her know that she's invited on the pod anytime. Trump was back in the news specifically this week because in an interview with Candace Owens that many people were anticipating was going to be a kind of a typical cliched rehashing of a number of what have become conservative talking points. Trump came out very aggressively in favor of the vaccine Um, and it kind of scrambled the conversation with Candace and it scrambled a lot of brains because so many people were anticipating him to sing a different tone. Right. Um, I think those people weren't really paying any attention whatsoever. Trump has been 
touting the vaccine for all through 2021. A lot of that has gotten lost because of a lot of his supporters seem so skeptical of it, one, and two, because it's gotten lost in a lot of his hoopla and self-generated hoopla around the claims of election theft. This should not come as a surprise to anyone. Donald Trump was involved in the in Project Operation Warp Speed, and he's going to take credit. It would be very strange for it would be out of character for him to not take credit. So I don't see if anyone had been paying attention, you would have seen that that he's been beating this drum for a while. Earlier this year at a, a couple of his rallies, he very vocally, you know, well, one took credit for the vaccine, I think, in one of his uh, rallies. He said, oh, take the vaccine. I did it. I did it. I was like, OK, Donald, whatever. But seems to be on the right side of this issue. Um, and and it really threw Owens for a bit of a loop in the conversation. So that was a topic that a lot of people were talking about. And I think that also speaks to um, another one of our, you know, the peculiarities of media figures and influencers in this new digital media and more fragmented media environment era. Um, and Candace Owens, and you can tell from her reaction, you know, one, she engaged in some kind of some wonky, faulty reasoning. She tried to lead Trump to water and, hey, uh, if the vaccine works so well, why have more people died this year under Joe Biden? than 2020 under you when there was no vaccine and if you go a couple like uh, it's it's a topic in a in a frame of logic worth exploring but it doesn't hold up because okay you are the people who are dying were they vaccinated or not and overwhelmingly in 2021 other than the first you know quarter of the year when the vaccine rollout most the vaccine was still not primarily available to uh, the vast majority of people yes wh whatever you may think about some of the the flaws or the failures of the vaccine and there are flaws um and are limitations but Listen, there's there's got to be some con big conspiracy if there's anything other than the numbers fitting out and playing out very much in support of the notion that the vast majority of the severe outcomes over of uh, the last six to nine months in 2022 have been highly concentrated amongst non-vaccinated people. They've also been concentrated uh, amongst older people and people who are unhealthy and with larger body uh, mass index and have comorbidities. So let's not leave that out of the conversation. But Owen's reasoning is not sound. OK, um, but it, I think this episode speaks to what happens and why we've got so much tribalism in media. And part of that is because everybody now, when all these media figures are building up their own independent followings, um, they know who their audience is. Right. A person knows how they built an audience, what message led to them building an audience, and that informs them knowing what their audience wants to hear. And unfortunately, lots of people are more focused on making sure they don't offend that audience and risk losing some of it than on telling them the truth. And that's kind of what you saw here with Candace Owens is that she knew despite uh, it's this it's kind of this this brain melting situation with Owens and Trump because she knows that most of her followers are big fans of Donald Trump, but they're also highly vaccine skeptical. And over the last six to nine months, let's call it, what have they been cheering Candace Owens on for speaking about? More about Donald Trump or more about vaccine skepticism? Clearly, vaccine skepticism has been more top of mind from them. Her reaction was about her fear about how how she was going to respond to Trump in a way that one, uh, that, that checked both of those boxes, that didn't offend the people that want her agreeing with Trump all the time, and also didn't affect the people that just want to hear her spout a lot of criticism of the vaccine. But Donald Trump, he made no bones about it. To quote him, look, the results of the vaccine are very good. And if you do get COVID, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine. 
bit of an overstatement, but not too much. The ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. Once again, bit of an overstatement, but generally correct. Um, but it's still their choice. And if you take the vaccine, you are protected. And yeah, Candace, Candace was scrambling. And I think it's very evident. Let's not for a second pretend that this uh, phenomenon is unique to Candace Owens or unique to uh, media figures on the right. Okay. Everyone's just feeding their their followers the red meat and the stuff that they want to hear. Um, however, uh, it, it was interesting to watch Candace squirm a little bit. And I think very telling. And then the question is, does Donald Trump deserve any credit for the vaccine? And the answer, I'm sorry, some of you are not going to like to hear this, but is absolutely yes. Okay. The buck stops with an executive. Executives make decisions and whether or not those decisions are carried out by the executive, whether they do the actual work, they get to take credit for when those decisions turn out well. It's just like Obama with killing Osama bin Laden. I remember so many people are, oh, why is Obama taking credit for killing Osama bin Laden? Did he pull the trigger? Presidents don't pull triggers, okay? What presidents do are make decisions and give orders, and when those orders turn out well, they get credited for them. When those orders turn out poorly, they get the blame. Once again, that's the whole idea of being a chief executive. So, um, sorry, but I, I think a lot of people, they, one, are, are surprised about Trump touting the vaccine. No, it goes completely in line with his character to anything that he's involved in to, to really highlight the accomplishments um and also that he's been tout, you know he's been touting the the positives of the vaccine all year long um and also just accept it when executives have good results they get the credit and when they have bad results they get the blame that shouldn't be anything to uh, uh revolutionary that's not a revolutionary notion here um, and also a lot of this celebrating or or, or kind of gloating on about uh, on the left about you know uh, Trump kind of scrambling the brains of his followers who were vaccine skeptics. Let's just make no fucking mistake whatsoever. Had Trump won the election, all the liberals, the entire resistance was going to be crazy vaccine skeptical. They were going to be, uh, they were not going to be taking the vaccine. God knows what Trump put in there. I mean, you can go back and we have all the sound bites and the tweets. We have God knows how many from uh, uh, individuals on the left, one from uh Kamala Harris, you've got a number of them out there. One in particular right here is from Joanne Reed from last year, Joanne Reed of MSNBC. Uh, I mean, will anyone, anyone at all ever fully trust the CDC again? And who on God's earth would trust the vaccine approved by the US FDA? How do we get a vaccine distributed after this broken Trumpist nonsense has infected everything? Okay, so stop pretending that one side or the other has has all the brains is morally superior. Okay, both sides are equally as tribal and will feel comfortable and support something or be suspicious of something based on these tribal markers. And we all know that had once again had Trump won and the conversation been focused on. Donald Trump touting the vaccine and promoting the vaccine, all the resistance types, all the anti-Trump types were going to, they weren't going to take, most of them weren't going to take the fucking vaccine. So um, unfor it's an unfortunate feature of our modern society and political economy, but uh, it's one that we can't ignore. Uh, another interesting piece of what Trump said, which was incorrect, and mentioning that if we hadn't had the vaccines, we were looking at the Spanish flu 2.0. And the Spanish flu, if you recall, was the last kind of major worldwide pandemic. Um, although there were a couple bigger ones in the 20th century than we, we might recall. I think there was one, an, an outbreak of H1N1 in the 70s that I mean approached a million deaths worldwide. And then that starts begging the question and an interesting analysis of what happens when there's a worldwide pandemic or outbreak, but there's not 
social media. I'm not saying that COVID and this pandemic of the last two years was entirely a, a creation of social media and it overconnected society, but it does bear investigating and looking into to what extent the concern and the behavior and the the attention paid to the COVID pandemic um, was kind of you know was was kind of fanned and heated up by the fact that everybody's connected and has so much information coming at them at all times. And then you think seven hundred thousand people worldwide died in the seventies doesn't really make the history book. So interesting to consider, although I don't think it's something that we could ever quantitatively or substantively or objectively judge and determine. Um, but the Spanish flu, first off, it was an influenza virus, not a, a coronavirus. So people throw the term flu around quite often, um, but this was an actual, this was an influenza. Um, at the time, only 1.8 billion people worldwide, and it's tough to gauge. It's early 20th century, not as much as many measurement tools. Um, but, you know, by some estimations, there were over 10 million deaths worldwide. And I mean, we were approaching 1% of, uh, of, you know, the worldwide population. What was very interesting is that, you know, only 13 million new people were born each year. So in the only time in recorded memory where worldwide population would go down because of the death rate. So since there was only 13 million people being born each year during, you know, the late 1910s, um, if that many people died in a year, the, the worldwide population is going down, which I found very interesting. Another very interesting feature of the Spanish flu, as opposed to COVID and the one just incontrovertible quality of COVID that for some reason a lot of people still ignore, is that it's far, far, far exponentially massively more dangerous to older people and it's heavily age stratified, not by a factor of two or three, but a factor of like God knows 20 or 30. Um, the Spanish flu, not the same case. The median death at least in the U.S., from COVID, I believe, is something like 78. That's the median age of death. Um, in the Spanish flu, it was something, at least from what I read, in the late 20s. Like This was something that was a threat and a danger to children and to the young. And that, in, in trying to interpret and draw, draw comparisons and analogies, I think is something that you absolutely cannot ignore um, and not not that we're going to celebrate any feature of a virus that has caused so much damage and and destruction and death but it it's definitely one of the if you're judging it on a curve one of the the less troubling features of the coronavirus that it does not seem to impact the youth the spanish flu back in the late 1910s did um people speculate on why it's interesting to think about history and what get makes the history books and what doesn't do you know that there was something called the Russian flu in the 1890s that apparently killed nearly a million people worldwide? Apparently, that the if we're looking at, you know, not contemporary, not in the age of mass media, but somewhat recent history pandemics, it was the Spanish flu. But then before that, about 20 years before, it was the Russian flu. And the Russian flu is pretty significant. Death toll, once again, a million people when there's only 1.8. I mean, that that fact that scales out to about 5 million, 6 million people if we're to account for population size. Um, and 1 million people also with far less uh, uh, population density, far less travel, and harder for viruses to spread in that manner. There's no air travel back in the 1890s. And one of the reasons that, at least from what I read, that they speculate on the the impact being lower for uh, or or being more impactful on the youth of the Spanish flu is because of the Russian flu. Is that those who were, who were alive during the Russian flu um, built up some degree of immunity, and that's most of the population. You know. 
20 and above and it, it, the youth had not been exposed to the russian to the russian flu either you know one let's call it both people who hadn't been born yet and children 0 to 0 to 10 they just weren't exposed as much so they had less built up immunity while the older cohorts did um so i don't know i love to do a little more investigation on the russian flu i always find it interesting in these discoveries about history and these significant events that didn't really make the the history books or are not really topics of discussion think um the pandemic this pandemic really floated the spanish flu up there and and i think uh it's interesting to now see that there was the russian flu as well one other topic related to trump and the vaccines and didn't really pop up no new information popped up this week but it did start circulating in conversation on twitter again a lot of people have always some memory hold this it's pretty strange how the vaccine was announced literally right after the election right as soon as almost immediately within a couple of days of it being announced that Joe Biden was the winner of the 2020 election, the the availability um, and the um, and the trial tests uh, for the Pfizer vaccine are announced. It's kind of suspicious timing. I don't want to look too deeply into it in terms of some you know, worldwide crazy sinister conspiracy, but we should look into why, uh, what informed and motivated that timing. And there's a guy named Eric Topol. He's a doctor. He's on Twitter. He's also blocked me because he's a schmuck. Um, but anyways, the guy was so wrong on so many, uh, I don't know. He's got a, a an itchy tr- uh, trigger finger on blocking people. And I don't know, I got into some conversations with him and he was just so consistently wrong on so many predictions regarding COVID and you know, doesn't like being told so. Anyways, um, an article popped up. This is from October 2020, October 19th, 2020. MIT Technology Review. One doctor's campaign to stop a COVID-19 vaccine being rushed through before election day. And that doctor was Eric Topol. Um, the way it's framed here is that Trump was trying to jam through the vaccine irresponsibly and recklessly in order to get it in there before the election. And Topol was a motivating factor in delaying it till after the election because that was apparently the more medically sound and responsible thing to do. Does that story check out? Does that reasoning check out that delaying the announcement one week or two weeks was was motivated by science and the scientific process and testing out the vaccine as opposed to really motivated about not wanting to give Trump the positive momentum from announcing the vaccine before the election. I don't know if that story that doesn't seem to check out. Certainly seems like the delay was done more so not to give Donald Trump that feather in his cap in time for the election as opposed to, hey, we needed to run this. Uh, you, you look back. There was no additional data compiled in that period. Uh, the, there's no discernible scientific reason that it was delayed for a couple of weeks. It was very, very suspicious. If you're looking at the totality of the evidence, and I, there might be another piece of evidence that I haven't seen, but. It certainly seems from what's available, and now we're a year off from this, that this decision was motivated, whether by Topol and other doctors on social media motivating it or by the pharma companies themselves, to delay the announcement of the vaccine till after the election for no real good scientific reason. And um, in once again, telling the story in retrospect of the 2020 election and the pandemic and how these two dovetail each other, I think this is going to take on um, heightened prominence and importance in, in, in interpreting things um, as we go along. Okay, so Donald Trump, loud and proud about the vaccine, seemed to scramble the brains of Candace Owens uh, and a lot of observers because it was not what people would expect to hear from him. Um, We'll see how this plays out. 
So another item and a segment that is going to be coming up pretty often here that I would like to title reality always catches up is about crime. Okay. There's so many base obvious realities about crime, but a lot of people have insisted on running these odd little experiments and denying these realities in recent memory, right? So a reality, there are dangerous people out there, bad people who want to do bad things, whether physically or harming property, and you need to have deterrent effect there. Society needs to have forces and structures in place to either stop them from doing so or punish them if they do do so. These are basic, obvious realities. Nobody for many years, for decades, nobody respectable would question these basic precepts. Yet recently, these movements that ostensibly right off the bat are about holding law enforcement accountable and quote unquote reform, which is are both very valid topics to explore. However, they've dived into simply denying reality, denying that dangerous people wish to do dangerous things, then that then the absence of a deterrent effect or consequence will do them more. Very simple. If there's less consequence for harming people, certain people will harm people more. Okay. But for some reason we've tossed this out the window. But as we're seeing recently with these crime waves and with a lot of a lot of people, the, the political calculus and the conversation around these issues really shifting because of the recent crime wave, as I said, reality always catches up. So a couple people that reality just caught up to, one is Illinois State Senator Kimberly Lightfoot and Democrat uh, Pennsylvania Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Both of these politicians, you know, one is... is a congressperson, the other is a local politician. They are both very vocal about police reform and quote unquote defunding the police. They're clearly stating that we need to take rethink our approach towards law enforcement can't be as punitive as punishes many people and that incarcerating people, you know, is not going to be as large a part of the picture going forward in, in American law enforcement and criminal justice. Well, both of them got carjacked within 24 hours of each other last week. OK, reality caught up. Unfortunately, there are people out there that wish to do you harm and sometimes steal your car at gunpoint. And if you don't punish them or there's no threat of punishment or you don't have significant resources in place to catch them or prevent them from doing it, you could be the subject of their desires. You could be the subject of their ill intent. And that's what happened to these two individuals. So reality seems to also have caught up to a lot of the progressives in San Francisco. San Francisco is probably the most progressive part of, you know, at least progressive metropolitan area in America. Um, they've always been at the forefront of whatever their, you know, kind of progressive ethos and platform is. Um, and they've taken really a lead on these quote unquote progressive approaches towards law enforcement. Initially with George Gascon, who is the district attorney um, for most of the 2010s in trying to reduce uh, the, the general thesis, uh, the general principle is decarceration, incarcerate people less that we have, we lock up too many people in the US and that reducing the prison population in and of itself is a goal. Let me say that again. Simply imprisoning less people is a goal, as opposed to that the amount of people imprisoned should be a reflection of how many people are a threat or commit crime, right? It's like, seems like the incarceration levels should be reflective of criminality. The goal, ideally, yes, is to reduce them, but not at the expense of public safety. But that hasn't been the San Francisco approach by George Gascon um, and his successor, Chesa Boudin. 
Chesa Boudin, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this individual. The fact that this person is in, is, is the lead um, public uh, criminal justice uh, uh, official in a city is beyond psychotic. Look into this person's background. His parents were terrorists. They were not. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm not exaggerating. His parents were in jail for murder for most of the last 20, 30 years. Members of the Weather uh, weather Underground, um, they were part of radical organizations from the 60s and 70s, and they were involved in, in a murder and have been locked up. Chessa um, is pretty much a stated communist, and I, I don't throw that term around loosely. A lot of people like to accuse, you know, of label anything that's hardcore progressive as socialism, communism. I don't. I don't use that terminology. Like if I call someone a communist or a socialist, they fit into a pretty narrow set of of criteria that would justify that label. He's worked for you know uh, uh, for Hugo Chavez, the socialist leader who flushed Venezuela down the toilet. Like Chesa worked for him. Like he makes no bones about his views on society, and he's a clear decarcerationist. He wants a lower prison population, no matter what. He wants if he wants to divert. As a lot of these are called diversion policies and programs to instead of people who commit crimes, instead of sending them to jail, divert them into non-incarceration programs or, or other other ways of dealing with them and it all sounds you know nice and fuzzy and furry at first and it sounds like a lot of these things do make sense because they're supposed to oh let's go find another way to handle people who don't commit violent crime but it never stays like that it never stays within those boundaries it always ends up that dangerous criminals who commit violent crimes end up getting second chances and get unleashed back onto the public there was one stat on this that was pretty mind-blowing. This is San Francisco in between 2016 and 2019. Half of all offenders and three-quarters of the most violent ones who were released from San Francisco jails before trial, so meaning before they, you know, once they were arrested and not uh, not being subject to bail, uh, were released between 2016 and 2019, went on to commit new crimes. So they reoffended. All these people that were arrested, the idea was, okay, if you arrest them, but you have not yet given them a trial and convicted them and sent them to prison permanently, well, they they can't be detained before their trial, thus they need to be let out. Half of them and three quarters of the violent offenders went on to reoffend before their trial, okay? That's reality. That's how people act. Most most people don't become criminals. That's why the whole notion of underlying causes or dealing with the root causes, like, sure, yes, we want to figure out why people commit crime, but most of this is window dressing. Most of the people who most of the people who have difficult circumstances do not become criminals. And most of the people who become criminals do so habitually. It's not it's a feature, not of bug of what they do. And so these uh, this approach to law enforcement, decarceration, diversion, not detaining people pretrial has turned San Francisco into a shithole. It's made it essentially unlivable. Okay, so once again, we have these pie in the sky utopian ideals and and uh, a new rethinking of law enforcement and whatnot and reality always catches up so reality caught up this last cut these last couple weeks to uh san francisco mayor london breed london breed is an african-american woman and generally very progressive um but she finally every once in a while you hear london breed speak and you're like it doesn't seem like she's fully on board with the progressive project, right? That she that she realizes that the progressives in in the DA's office 
and the board of supervisors for San Francisco that she's not fully on board with their shtick, but she never really came out against them aggressively until the last week. So she gave a speech on December 14th on San Francisco's public safety crisis. And if you just listen to this speech only you would think London Breed is some hard ass fascist. I mean, she she does not pull any punches right now to, to quote her. It's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city come to an end. It comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement and less tolerant of all the bullshit. I mean, you would think that this woman is, is a speech from Rudy Giuliani in New York in 1994, not London Breed in San Francisco in 2021. But from what we can tell, she's had enough. This whole this progressive approach to law enforcement, homelessness, and criminal justice in general is no longer flying, that reality caught up. The realities of allowing people to, uh, essentially allowing the Tenderloin District in San Francisco to be an open-air drug market, to continually releasing violent and, you know, and uh, those who are criminals who are violent or who we have a probable cause to believe will be violent repeatedly and allowing them to commit repeated acts of crime is no longer feasible, okay? This is the reality. And London Breed came out very forcefully. Um, she even wrote a Medium post herself elaborating all, the, all this because she could tell that the progressives in San Francisco have gotten so used to, to being able to write their ticket that having their approach adopted um, is that they were going to give her a lot of pushback despite how many people realize their uh, approaches failing in San Francisco. So she titled it a safer San Francisco. And she writes, I was raised by my grandmother to believe in tough love and keeping your house in order. And I believe we need a little of that now more than ever. So today I'm announcing a series of new steps to address public safety in San Francisco. She announced uh, she issued an exec, uh, an emergency order for an emergency intervention uh, intervention plan in the Tenderloin neighborhood, securing emergency police funding, uh, refunding the police to ensure we have the resources to combat major safety problems over the next several months, amending our surveillance ordinance so law enforcement can prevent and interrupt crime in real time. Oh, that you can't ha you can't handcuff the police that they have a difficult job in preventing and stopping and enforcing uh, preventing crime, right? You can't be you can't be hamstringing them and you know and leaving them low resource to do a very difficult task. And also one of her last bullet points was disrupting the illegal street sales of stolen goods that have become a clear public safety issue and are contributing to reta retail uh, theft. So there you have it. Highly recommend that you go check this out in her, her medium piece. But I give kudos to Ms. Breed for finally stepping up and doing the right thing and doing uh, the right thing in no certain term, uncertain terms, right? She even, uh, she tweeted out, and this is another good way to frame these issues. Uh, we also need there to be accountability when someone does break the law. San Francisco is a compassionate city, but our compassion cannot be mistaken for weakness or indifference. Okay, obviously, yeah, this is just a baseline sensible approach to governing a city and a society. Where was this for the last four or five years as San Francisco is deteriorating into squalor? Why does it take hitting rock bottom to spur this basic common sense in some realms of the progressive world these days? Okay, I, I don't think it was always like this. We didn't take on these strange, weird, unnecessary utopian pie in the sky projects and experiments 
you know, 10 years ago, San Francisco wasn't like this. L.A. Was, wasn't like this and experiencing the problems that it was still under Democratic control, but it wasn't subjective to these ridiculous quack science experiments that they are. So London didn't just all learn all this stuff last week. She didn't recognize these principles. She didn't learn that, you know, that you have to handle criminals in a tough manner all of a sudden it really became politically expedient for her now to do so. And it's really unfortunate that it takes things deteriorating and it takes hitting rock bottom or some sort of bottom to spur this type of reaction. So I'm hoping that, you know, so far there has of course been pushback, of course, Chesa Boudin, because he'll never admit to, to being wrong, even though he's up for recall uh, movement against Boudin gathered enough signatures and he'll be up for recall in 2022 and he's going to lose. But he'll never give an inch and he'll never accept that his little project was a quack project that failed. Um, and a couple of the members of the board of supervisors in San Francisco, one guy is named Dean Preston. He's a complete fucking idiot. They've pushed back, but Breed has stood her ground. She did not let the progressives and the decarcerationists intimidate her. So it looks like these new public safety initiatives in San Francisco are moving forward. We'll see how we'll see if they implement them and we'll see how long if they do implement them, they'll definitely help. Right. They're definitely going to steer the ship, turn the ship in the right direction. But once you dig yourself a hole, once you once you release and and, and harm uh, public safety, basic public safety and empower criminals like this, it takes a little while to get out of that hole. OK, it's what America saw a lot in the early to mid 90s. But, it you know, we eventually turned it around. We got safe cities for quite a while. So we'll see how successful or not successful um, Ms. Breed is with this project. Another person you definitely should be reading on these topics, Michael Schellenberger. He's nobody's been better on really in an eloquent and thorough way documenting and explaining the problems in with recent progressive governance in California, particularly San Francisco and secondarily Los Angeles. And, and you know, Mike, uh, there's, he's got a great bullshit detector. He thinks that this does you know, that a new day has dawned in San Francisco and is very supportive of what Mayor Breed is doing. And, um, you know, if you go to Schellenberger MD, his Twitter feed, you see just a ton of great information uh, on these topics from Mike. Another topic, and I, I, I've spoken a lot and I, I comment a lot about COVID policies for children in public schools. My mother was a public school teacher, a kindergarten teacher. I have a lot of friends that are young parents, and it's very important to me how you know this is this is impactful for society the way that we raise children and our policies in the public spaces and institutions through which they're you know they're raised are really critical but not just for kids another uh, 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 another kind of area of society that is very impactful for this is also college and the impact of covid policies and how this situation is affecting this cohort of college students is also very interesting and i think has gone under discussed um, man, we are seeing some really psychotic stuff coming out of the collegiate kind of COVID medical bureaucracy in implementing policies that just have no bearing to reality whatsoever and no bearing to any realistic risk assessment for college campuses and people who are college age. Okay. Here's just a few of them. Um, this week, Princeton released requirements for the spring semester. Students must have boosters, wear masks, and be tested twice a week. Gyms are closed. Students are advised to stay home. Those who test positive are isolated in special facilities. If those get filled up, they can stay at home. This is overkill is too, too kind a word. We all know that this is no 
admirable or sensible way to operate a, a, a campus or a little slice of humanity based on COVID, particularly as we're coming up on a phase where we know so many people have already established some degree of immunity from uh, vaccination or prior infection. And for the incredibly, I mean, the share of call of deaths from COVID that are college age are like 2%. If that, and of course, with the vast majority, over 90% of that 2% with substantial comorbidities beforehand. I mean, college is a phase that this is supposed to be the the on-ramp to adulthood, the first phase during which people and young people are exercising some degree of independence and taking on more risk outside the cocoon of high school and their and their parents and family life. And instead, we're just we're treating them like fucking infants. This this is going to have severe impact on the next generation of leaders like Princeton, like this. This ain't Cal State Northridge. The people who go to Princeton say what you want about these institutions of higher learning. And I do. But ostensibly, the people who go to Princeton are supposed to occupy significant positions of power, authority and responsibility in society. How are we expecting them to handle the real world when we're treating them like this, like like you know, overgrown children uh, and solving with a bias to uh, on every decision for anxiety, concern, and low risk tolerance. Like th this stuff makes no sense whatsoever. Um, another one, Emerson College in Boston, you know, considered a very liberal school, but uh, not to be surprised, but there, the BS you see from Emerson is very evident of a lot of other campuses. They've issued a stay in room directive for students returning next month. The same students who already were required to get boosted and tested twice a week. What the hell are we doing? Requiring a low risk cohort to get vaccinated, boosted and tested and doing all these ridiculous quarantines for those who test positive. And this was, I mean, forget it, even the, the new calculus now with Omicron that's highly transmissible. So more people are going to get it, but even less impactful and severe. There's no way in hell this passes any sort of cost benefit analysis whatsoever. And beyond that, the two guys who have done really good work on this, um, Michael Tracy and Richard Hanania. And Michael Tracy has been documenting this for a while. He wrote a number of good pieces on the crazy stuff. Cause Michael was just getting tips and he was getting, you know, kind of uh, uh, off the record comments from college students saying, Jesus Christ, I'm getting you know, demerits and I'm getting kicked off campus and ratted out for having my mask pulled down below my nose in the library. Uh, and it's just crazy stuff. One piece that he wrote on his Substack is from a couple about six weeks ago. <clears throat> Due process and normal social relations are being destroyed by COVID snitching culture. And that's one of the biggest issues here that you're trying to socialize these young people. You're trying to allow them to experience normal social relations and establish norms and learn and grow from that. And all this stuff is just skewing it. It all, all this stuff is disrupting those normal social relations. Get just a sampling of the nonsense that, that Tracy saw. Stanford and UPenn vaccinated students required to wear face masks while playing pickup basketball. I mean, that's ridiculous even if they're not vaccinated. The cost-benefit analysis simply doesn't work out. Georgetown and USC, students are expressly forbidden for, from removing their masks in class even for a few seconds to hydrate. You're not allowed to pull, pull your mask down even to take a sip of water. And that would, aside from the fact that we know that 
or maybe even more of these masks, the cloth masks and the surgical masks do next to nothing, particularly if you draw the sample size off. Maybe maybe it, it interferes with particles and circulation if people are just in the same space for a minute or two. If you got kids sitting in an hour-long class, I'm sorry, those masks, the cloth, cloth masks don't do anything. But we now have these kids, before they're fully formed, operating with, you know, just constant, ubiquitous anxiety over violating some rule or or uh, getting some punishment for doing completely normal stuff. I mean, how is this, what type of way to live is this? And I'm sorry for pretty much no marginal safety benefit whatsoever. Um, so, I mean, you can go to Tracy Substack. That piece is great. He's got another one called Academia is Establishing a Permanent Surveillance Bureaucracy that Will Soon Govern the Rest of the Country. And one more that is called COVID Bullshit Jobs Are Driving Everyone Crazy. And so what this is more so about bureaucracy. What we've done here is we're regulating a variety of, of segments of society more, right? Instead of uh, the places that you can go where... Outside harming others or, or any criminal activity that you don't have to really worry about any regulations or rules like that's we're shrinking the playing field there. Um, so, for instance, what he sees is we're establishing all these positions at these college campuses. You've got covid czars now. You've got covid administrators. Once you hire those jobs. It's really tough to fire those jobs or to those those people are going to fight to keep those jobs. And once you establish this bureaucracy, it almost never gets rolled back. So the idea that, you know, if they're if America's experiencing 35 covid deaths a day, let's call it in May 2020 or oh, that's, you know, the call it, let's call it. Next winter, students come back to school September 2022. Throughout last summer, COVID is mostly extinguished. It's something that's clearly endemic as opposed to pandemic. You know, maybe 150 people are dying of uh, of COVID a day, which may or may not be the direct cause, but something that is a fraction of what it is right now. Do you think they're going to just release all these requirements and this regulatory system and this bureaucracy? It's incredibly unlikely. And this is going to affect college-age kids, particularly the, the cohort that was in college during the meat of the pandemic 2020 and 2021 irretrievably. And there's going to have a lot of second, third, fourth, and fifth layer layer impacts for society. So um, I don't know, the way the way that people are thinking about this just needs to change. And, and I'm concerned that on a lot of college campuses, particularly, and here's an interesting one, the most elite campuses and most elite colleges seem to be the most neurotic and have the most bureaucracy. And that also says something very bad. It says something not too great uh, about American higher education to begin with, is that we are solving for neuroticism amongst our high achievers, right? We are, we're looking for them to be the least risk averse, to, be to all be hall monitors, and I think that we're we're teaching them those lessons and those principles at the expense of other ones, and uh, and and it's going to have predictable results and predictably bad results. Wish I had a brighter picture for you on that one, but uh, unfortunately, America American higher education has seen better days. I'm not even going to get into student loans and that whole that that uh, that's just a fucking mess as well. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. 
Ladies and gentlemen, a rainy Christmas week here in Los Angeles. The magic of the internet bringing together, you know, apparent strangers who somehow find each other on the internet. Today it has brought me together with a gentleman named Craig Sanders. He's an associate attorney at Benish Freelander and a uh, former Air Force pilot. But more importantly and more pertinently, he's become somewhat of a, a COVIDologist on the internet and a source for COVID breakdown and information. Um, and, you know, just real quick, Craig, you're, you have no journalistic background nor necessarily a, you know as an ep epidemiologist or public health official correct yeah, none of those correct okay but what you are what you are is a guy who's really good at identifying and sourcing information on the internet and synthesizing it i'd say that's fair yeah i'm a data guy and a little bit as well i'm a former math wonk yeah. And so the point here being is that and I think this has been the experience of a lot of people during covid and it's uh, all related to, to kind of what I've seen. And then I want to hear Craig expound on it is that people just out there in general have kind of gotten the impression and they, they kind of they, they, they somewhat feel that they can no longer rely on experts, on sources, on on institutions, whether it be media or the people that media are highlighting, and, but they don't really know where to turn. They don't really know how to find good sources, how to judge whether sources are credible or not. And I got to be honest, it's difficult these days in a fragmented communication and media environment and in kind of my, you know, as, as I ramped up my presence uh, um, on social media and gathered a bit of a following, that's what I noticed. And uh, it's hard to describe this without sounding very self-indulgent. But during the first phase of COVID, I gathered somewhat of a following because a lot of people were out there trying to, to figure out what was going on February, March, April 2020. And without doing anything particularly revolutionary of just being able to search out good sources and data on the Internet and break it down to a couple layers, a couple layers deep, um, people found a lot more value in what I was doing than what they were finding from cable news networks or, or you know, or online periodicals, newspapers, magazines, whatnot. And I think it's very telling about how people need to think about how they interpret information and, and how they search for truth these days. So, Craig, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, kind of how this did, uh, how this came all together for you, what your, your, you know, what your experiences were, what motivated it, and kind of how you think about what you're doing in terms of, uh, you know, accumulating data, breaking it down and presenting it to the public. Sure. I think, you know, the simplest explanation for my start, and it was about April 2020, April or May, was that, you know, I was mildly, I would say mildly online, if you will, mildly on Twitter. Um, probably spent more time on Instagram, but not as much on either, period. So, you know, I kind of dabbled in the news on Twitter. Other than that was, you know, just kind of news, sports, peripheral, 10,000 foot view of everything. I got my family, you know, wife, job. It's it's mm -hmm. enough just to keep all that on my plate and, and get some sleep at night. So, you know, I wasn't a very online guy, but I started what got me into the fray, uh, as it were, was when I was looking for data and COVID, everyone was really hungry that even January, but February, March, starting kind of with Italy, Spain yep. and first peaks. And everyone was like, what's tomorrow? I mean, it, it, you know, there was it had to be at least a thousand people on Twitter, various strata, you know, some just kind of floating around and others perhaps more engaged and, you know, having Excel spreadsheets going and things like that. And it probably started Italy and Spain. I was looking and, and following the news and trying to get updates on that. But then when, you know, when it hit the U.S. pretty squarely in, in March in the Northeast, a little bit of the Pacific Northwest and Northern California was kind of the, the landing spots. 
you know, I, I wanted a little bit more from the news in terms of, you know, in terms of trends, in terms of what matters, in terms of case counts. And the very first thing that brought me to start collecting the data on my own was that no one, and I don't mean no one, but I mean no one with any kind of reach was doing the simple thing of a seven-day average. And they weren't mm -hmm. even doing that basic, simple thing. And yes. right at the beginning, there was Sunday to Monday comparisons and Monday to Tuesday comparisons. And each of those looking at the data collected the day before in some of these states. And they would say it tripled, you know, on Tuesday, yeah. it tripled from Monday. And that was the first thing. And I couldn't, I, I'm looking and I'm like, is anyone aggregating this in a decent way? And the answer was, pretty much roundly no. And so mm -hmm. that's when I started really just with Illinois. I was like, well, I'm going to do Illinois data as it pipes in. And then I started doing the Northeast a little bit with my little colored graphs and, you know, nothing changed. I, I suspect that I would do it for a week or two weeks or a month and then two months. And then, you know, that, that didn't end up being the plan. It, it's, it's quite a mystery, right? It's, it's, if you're someone who likes to kind of take the forensic approach and, and dissect this stuff, it's, it really is an, an endless interpretation. And, but I, I want to harp on a point that Craig made. There's just the basics about smoothing out data across a seven day, a three day or seven day average because they're reporting irregularities. This is not rocket science, right? But you couldn't <laughs> really find anyone doing it. I mean, it was similar to with with per capita. I, I was like, people are trying because at that point it and this is something that always factors in is that given just the pure geography, right? Uh, the virus hit other foreign territories before it hit the U.S. So you're trying to analyze what's going on there as a, with predictive value to project out what's going to happen closer to home. And not even just in your people's analysis, uh, accounting for the, the population size of a country or per capita. I mean, this is not this stuff that sixth graders could do, but you weren't finding it. Yeah. And people love numbers. They love big numbers. They love raw numbers. Yeah. And uh, it seems like the media found out that they love these big 10,000. That's a good one. 1,000. That's yep. a great one. And, you know, whether it has any meaning is, an, is another question entirely. Whether, you know, it, 10,000 in the U.S., we'd take it all day long. You know, 10,000 in, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, that's something to talk about. And so, you know, it's, it's something that, like you said, that was so simple. Uh, I thought I was not in on whatever the joke was. I, yeah. I truly did. I was like, this is through the looking glass stuff. If someone's playing with me that's not giving me the straight dope here. Yeah. And, and it's, once again, impossible to say this without sounding like you're tooting your own horn. But like people were looking at the way that I was breaking stuff down and find, you know, and this is, and what, what shocked me was that it was, I have a following that's highly educated and highly successful. There's a lot of successful people who just couldn't find better analysis than what I was giving. And I got to be honest, I wasn't doing anything that, like I said, that, that was, that was that complicated. Um, so what let's go to how you source, right? Um, there's the CDC. Then there's the question is, is the CDC lying? Not necessarily, right? But they're giving certain data points and that has certain value, but it's just a very incomplete picture, right? So how do you, in thinking about, you know, and understand that, it, and that's what a lot of people ask, um, what source do you use? But it's never what sources do you use because you need to use multiple sources and you need to analyze it, judge each one based on its own veracity and credibility, and then you need to mold it all together. So how do you... In, in, can you describe your process in terms of filling out the full picture and taking uh, uh, data from different sources? Right. I went, <clears throat> so I quickly identified that there wasn't a national 
in 2020, there wasn't, you know, the CDC isn't anywhere near what it is now in terms of that data collection, at least in terms yeah. of COVID. It was just uh, even toward the, even in the end of 2020, the CDC hasn't really come along until, you know, maybe last six, seven, eight, nine months, yeah. you know, other media, you know, me- media conglomerates, if you will, were beating them both in nice presentation and quicker presentation of the data, although mm-hmm. often erroneous presentation of the data when they couldn't smooth out the air. So most of where I went to were just the state dashboards themselves. I mean, that's yeah, what good. ended up happening. You had to yeah. go to the state dashboards and I had all these links and I'm just like, here we go. And and I got used to, it was almost Pavlovian kind of, I knew what every state looked like. I knew where it was. I knew most of the states necessarily didn't know exactly what they were doing when backlogs would come in. They didn't highlight it in 2020. We're talking about that all resolved eventually too. But the beginning, it was you just had to kind of go in there and look at local. I would I would do local Google sources, mm-hmm. Google searches for a local source news if I saw a number that seemed out of whack, and to see if there was some local epi that said, "Yeah, we released you know one thousand three hundred eighty four cases that go back three months today." Yeah, because it didn't even that on the state dashboard didn't exist. Yeah, and, and also so and, and, and to break one, it down. another one that that it seems so obvious and simple and and not shocking when you hear it, but that. The timing of of uh, of death data, right, and and the announcement of fatalities, and then you're thinking like, wait a second. And the, the first people I saw do this were some kind of Florida-based data scientists who everyone criticizes Florida. Yet on a lot of reporting, they seem to have been way ahead of people, right. and they were being more specific on if they reported a death on day on august 20th that the death actually occurred on july 15th and that this was something that was common to every territory but was not being what was not being communicated um another one not just from my own experiences and this is uh, i'm sure you recognize in terms of the the geography and local and and zooming in zooming out localization is los angeles county right everyone it, no, a lot of people think of Los Angeles County as Los Angeles, the city. They're completely different. And it was all county reported data. But everyone forgets Los Angeles County is the largest county in America. 10 million people, citizens, it's about like 40,000 square miles or something. It's the biggest county in America. And, it, you know, last uh, winter, while COVID's raging out of control technically in L.A. County, nobody breaks it down by territory. All I could not find one person in any media, local media, um, you know, the other kind of covid, let's call it amateur covid reporters such as myself. It wasn't that hard. Go to the county website and you see a breakdown by city. And, you know, things were different in Silmar than they were in West Hollywood in the Palisades. Right. And and in terms of trying to find this data and using it to make decisions about your own your own health, your own safety, or just to be more aware, it's like you're act, op, operating at such a deficit if you don't have if a person doesn't have access to that level of information and the distinctions. I'm sure you saw similar stuff to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would, you know, I was intimately familiar with a number of state dashboards for a while, Illinois, and they have, you know, various regions and the hospitalization utilization at various regions, the ICU, because they did kind of a tiered closing and opening and, and lockdown eat, you know, not lockdown, mm-hmm. but, you know, a, a version of opening, you know, when restaurants would be opening by region, by, you know, you know, like HHS reason, region for the for the national government. Illinois mm-hmm. had their own regions, I think one through 11 or something like that. And they all had their own little meters. And, you know, it was a good way to do it. And, you know. 
it's weird you get especially with california california is probably the worst state in the union to try to say california is doing x because it's so geographically disparate it touches you know you got san francisco popping off right now and you know in la was more danced with the summertime people Mm -hmm. you know the northern cal maybe you know kind of floated with some of the mid atlantic and northern people when when covid moved so Mm -hmm. if you wanted to know what's going down in your part of town not that you can get that you know tiny with the data but you can certainly get tinier than California reported 10,000 cases yesterday. You know, and oh, by the way, some hospital dumped 8,400. I mean, it, it means nothing. You know, if it means everything, then it means nothing, I guess. It can't just be a case number. Absolutely. And, and the larger point being is is that, you know, and I, uh, where uh, the the battle over COVID kind of comes is some people thinking that there is some uh, more sinister plot to misinform. And that might not necessarily be the case. It's just that a lot of people are incomplete. And if they're painting an incomplete picture, it has as little value as if they were yep. trying to misinform, but they're not, that's not necessarily the motive. They're just they're just sloppy, and they're only going through one layer of analysis. So you know, and we'll we'll move on, get to more kind of current analysis and what the yep. picture is looking like from here in just a moment. But I want to just get into, and so people can be aware of once we we move on from COVID because it looks like that's going to happen relatively soon. Just the tactics and and methodology and recognizing where where there's where there are mistakes being made or they're being manipulated. Um, you know, I'd like to see if there's any particular fallacies that come to mind or, or, or tactics that you see in the media that whether intended or not mislead people. I think a lot of it is place is it's on the headlines, right? It, 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 yeah. All these media, they're always constructing the headline for shareability, not for truth. So you one, you've got to be interpreting the headline where they place the word expert, where they place the number. And in, in, if they're talking about deaths or hospitalizations, the percentage at number one and number two, making sure you got to read the fucking piece, because a lot of times the information, the piece doesn't match the headline. I'm sure you've seen the same. Oh, I have. My own, you know, it's it's almost a personal rule that has evolved in terms of whether or not I think some, you know, I, I think a story is to be written off as if the headline, you know, it, it almost has to connect. The headline can't be so disconnected from the guts of it where someone on Twitter tells me, hey, the lawyer Craig, go. If you read the story, it's not what the headline says. If it's that's disconnected, then the story's gone. Which I don't care if the story is the most beautiful, glowing you know, four-dimensional prismatic essay building piece that 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 would change the world, then change the headline because, you know, you deal with the world as it's presented to you and the world as it's presented to you gets shared by headlines. And and it's, you know, it's kind of the, it's it's moved. The, the tide starts moving, you know, you're buffeted on the tides of these nudges that are headlines that are people now quoting the headlines or that are people quoting what they remembered the headline being and just kind of say, yeah, I remember... You know, yeah. Florida's kind of the poster child for that. You know, Florida now is in its own warp zone where there is, you know, I, I would prefer Florida and uh, all the states, in fact, report differently, like a, in a day, every, you know, have a tweet a day that just says, we reported X deaths since yesterday. Those deaths are X within the last week, X in the last two, X in the last four, and X beyond a month. Mm-hmm. Same thing for cases. And they just do that every day in a single tweet. You don't need a dash. I mean, just that simple data. No, yeah. no state really does that. But Florida now is in it's Florida's is persona non grata forever because it it got into this kind of political 
warp zone that it can't get out of. I mean, it cannot get out of at this point anymore. And I know there's yeah. still some thing, you know, they report deaths by date of death and, you know, in the CDC. And so yeah, I think you're referring to how they're, they're accused of, uh, it, they've become the political battlefield <laughs> domestically and they're accused of messing around with the data. So much. And last year they were accused of, uh, of, of cooking the data with no, Correct. With no evidence whatsoever. I mean, there's legitimately zero evidence at all that they were reporting or hiding anything as opposed to any other state. But yeah, they they've, they use some different methodology in terms of data presentation. And I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I, I wish. Look, we all got to get used to like I, I use Pavlovian. We got used to knowing that deaths weren't now at least, you know, that that wasn't always the case and still isn't always the case when someone wants to push an agenda online. But mm -hmm. the you know, the the mass knowledge now, the the Twitter hive mind as it were, now knows that if California reports 87 deaths, that those deaths occurred at some time from recently up to including many weeks ago, up to possibly even a few months ago that just got added. Mm -hmm. Because we now know that I wish Florida would report both ways. I, I do wish they would just go back and just on their weekly report, say the deaths changed, you know, or, or just daily with the CDC, just go 65 deaths since yesterday. Those deaths may go back. I wish they'd do it because everyone was used to it. And mm -hmm. then they could just shut everyone up and there wouldn't be an issue. I can see it both ways. And the New York Times, who's a very great graphic. I actually like the New York Times graphics. I like the, you know, it's a very simple, readable, um, you know, simple readable website mm -hmm. but new york times does that for you so i just always say hey guys if you think florida's lying new york times does the difference in deaths and they add florida's deaths as if they're reporting like normal so florida mm -hmm. be 50 today or 50 a week ago you know i'm making a number up yeah. where it might go two on the cdc because of the way florida reports so i don't really care i just want people not to think the underhanded stuff is going on so they're just better informed yeah because it's just the noise floor gets so high that it's just hard to poke your head above and say, yeah. you know, what the hell's real and what's not? Because now I'm, you know, I've gone from literally cooking the books and hiding dead bodies under the sand of the beach <laughs> to people thinking there's a version of that going on because they're now reporting by date of death, which does look like it skews the recent ones if you don't know what you're looking for, I suppose. Yeah. And anyone can impute an, a sinister motive or some right. sinister valence to something right. it, based on their own biases and prejudices. I can sure. remember there was one uh, Twitter interaction I remember you having, and you're just literally given the most plain num you are just dispensing numbers and someone hopped in your mentions to you know to uh, to berate you about something having to do with florida and you were like hmm, well you know literally transferring n n uh, uh, the inputs on charts from wherever i found them to my twitter profile seems to really piss you off or something like that but we see this just incessantly around covid i got the one the the most <laughs> The most attacked I've ever been, I still remember it. And it was a very, it was an innocuous tweet um, because I was, you know, this is the CDC's is is now good. It's, it does data, day in arrears, which mm -hmm. is kind of ends up being almost two days in arrears. So the state, you know, the state dashboards will change on Tuesday mm -hmm. based on whatever reported to them by either Monday night, whenever the state's internal cutoff is. Mm -hmm. And they'll report that on Tuesday to the CDC which will report on Wednesday, that Tuesday data. So it's a little slinky effect, mm -hmm. but I saw that the Florida data, all I saw was that the Florida data was like a three for two on accident. They had mm -hmm. accidentally reported two days worth of data as one. 
And mm-hmm. so it had this huge Florida pop that like two and a half X the week before. And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's rising, but it's not rising like that. I said, guys, here's what I think happened. If I'm just looking at the trends, it looks like when they reported, they reported Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday in as just the weekend or in as just mm-hmm. Sunday or whatever it was. Almost certainly this is the case. Just wait for this to even out in the next couple of days. And then Florida DOH saw that and they said, actually, you're right. You know, hey, the lawyer, Craig, you're right. That's what that looks like. So what happened Our thing that went in, it, it maybe basically deleted a day. And so mm-hmm. now it compressed the other day. If, if one day zero, the other day is really big. Mm-hmm. And the people, hundreds, <laughs> dozens, are high. I don't have that many faults. I mean, I just hit five figures. And I mean, it was like, an event. It was, a, it was, you know, and I'm just, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm sitting on the bed. I remember with my wife laughing. I'm like, look at these people. They're coming out of the woodwork yeah. and everything, every accusation, me, this is your uh, DeSantis, this or that. And I'm like, look, I got, I got no dog in this. I'm, you guys are making me defend Florida's University of Georgia grad who's supposed to hate on everything <laughs> Florida, who's supposed to call them frosted tips, gold chain wearing white beater guys back in 1999. You know, I got, I was born in Florida, so I've, I've got people there, but I mean, uh, I'm supposed to, you know, kind of rib them pretty hard and you guys are making me defend Florida. You know, how dare you almost. God, it is, it is uh, an indicator, not a great indicator of where our discourse is at. They are a lot of people who, are putting the emotions first and i don't mean that as a compliment it is no, they've got to take the emotion out of this right. um and yeah that that was just that interaction was so evident of a lot of a lot of what we've seen over the last couple of years here um so let's get to some more and see where we're at now right um you've yeah. been doing a lot of synthesis of the data coming out of, of south africa and like you said hey when we see the the uh, the virus, it, hey, it came from China. It emanated from China. It's gone east to west. That's the trajectory that we have to analyze with Omicron. Um, even though I, everything that it, everything I've gathered thus far, it seems that it didn't originate necessarily in South Africa. They were just the first to sequence it. But okay, that seems to be the most comprehensive data we've got thus far on this new strain. Um, you've been doing a lot of work around the, what you've seen from South Africa and then secondarily around the UK. Um, so what are you seeing on Omicron? Seeing good, you know, good news, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm hoping, thinking it, it'll continue. The best data says it'll continue, but I. Yeah, as you said, I, I started in South Africa because that's where the, the, the bomb, you know, that's where the sufficient amount of cases, data, hospitalizations, mm-hmm. and now deaths are in order to glean something from the data. I mean, the data data mean very little when they're when they're little. Little data mean little, right? Yeah. So um, you know, unless they're you know very significant in, in, in small at data. the extremes. But, yeah. Right, right. And so um, you know, exactly. Yeah. If the first 5,000 people to have COVID all drop dead in one day, then that's then we can, we have some takeaways from that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I'll, I'll, then I'll, I'll lock down whatever you want me to do. Exactly. Um, if it's 28 days later, it's a different virus. So, yeah. um, but so Gotang province within South Africa seemed to be the epicenter within South Africa, which is Johannesburg, the most populous province. It was a nice one because it was a, it was a populated area. It had suburbs. It had exurbs. It looks like an area that might look like a number of other places in, in Europe and the U.S. in terms of population. There are some mm-hmm. differences that I'll mm-hmm. touch on briefly, but it, you know, it, it, it was like a match was lit and that thing went straight vertical in, mm-hmm. in a way that we hadn't seen. And in the first days of it, you know, after it was sequenced in the first days when they started seeing more cases and then about a week or two when those numbers started doubling in that every two to three day 
regime, the anecdotal data from their their people who didn't seem to have any political axe to grind. That's one thing I liked about hearing from people without a political axe to grind is they're saying, hey, look, I'm treating dozens or hundreds of these people. This is different. Mm -hmm. We know it's different Mm -hmm. so far. But it's different so far, and it's different not in one or two or seven people, but are in dozens or hundreds of people. A more significant data set, yeah. Correct. And so when we watch the cases go up, and, and, you know, I followed the cases in Gotang, and I followed them up and now down the mountain, and they're almost, you know, I mean, they're falling down the mountain quite quickly on the case uh, side of the house, although there's a holiday, so I'll let it settle out before I you know, triumphantly say it's down to X, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, next week, middle of next week, we'll have an idea of what it's actually at, but I suspect it's pretty close to where it is because it was, it was falling before even their December 16th holiday and now before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the biggest thing we started to see was their anecdotal data of hospitalizations being less severe, less people being ventilated, less people in ICUs being borne out in real time and in quick time. So as the cases march north, And then as you waited a week for those hospitalizations to pile up or eight or nine or 10 days, because there's always a lag, Mm -hmm. um, or I I should say there's a lag if if you're not trying to prove a point one way or the other, other than that, then you can just say whatever the hell you want. But, uh, but in real life, there's, you know, there's a lag just because the data get collected, reported, you know, and it takes a little time to get sicker. And then it takes a little time to unfortunately die for, for many people from getting sick. So, Mm -hmm. but as that lag started to, to materialize, you know, the, the, the curves were not the same. And so the hospitalization has almost certainly peaked at this point in Gotang province. It was around 3,500 and change in Delta just, you know, just months ago, uh, it peaked almost three X that it was 9,000 something hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. And then the Mm -hmm. ICUs, uh, they didn't even, I think they just crested or they're going to crest somewhere around 20% of the Delta peak Mm -hmm. while the cases peaked, um, at or I believe maybe even above, I have to look, but right around the same peak, although mm-hmm. it was much more short lived. And would you say that there's also a takeaway here? And when it's a milder strain, you can also, and your eye, look at, okay, it's about the layers. Look, Craig uh, uh, breaks down not just hospitalizations, mm-hmm. but ICUs. And also another fact, a uh, data point that would be there is time spent in ICU or time spent yes. hospitalized, because in that ca- in this case, you can in- anticipate and interpret that some of the hospitalizations might be unnecessary hospitalizations for a weaker strain, right? And that a lot of people who no, they didn't need to go. They could have done without the host. They were sick. They might be older. And, you know, listen, it still can be a very uncomfortable illness at, at its worst, but it's going to pass through the system and the, the totality of the data suggests that it is a weaker strain. So that that's another if you another way that by, by look going one layer deeper, you can kind of glean the qualities of of this particular strain of the virus. Yeah, it's one reason that I stay. You're, you're exactly right. And one of the reasons I like to deal with hospitalization census versus admission is okay. because it tends to filter out the stay. And so if, you know, if four times as many people are being admitted, but they're being admitted for a quarter of the time that they were before mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the and the, the rolling, you know, the the, the turnover and exactly, the turnstile, yeah. it just keeps going. You know, that's thousands of people, whatever the number is, or hundreds of people, mm-hmm. that then you look at you can look at the census. But looking at admissions to census, whether that separates a little bit mm-hmm. will give some indication of a shorter stay. It could give some indication, you know, a couple indications. One, like you said, 
with availability, maybe people will, you know, they're not being told from their local people, hey, don't come in unless you're really serious or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so now mm -hmm. they can go in with a, a level four when maybe it would have taken a level six for them to go in before. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got that. The second thing is incidental positive hospitalizations. And the fact that we haven't teased those out oh, at the state God. level or the national level in now, you know, we're coming up on a, two years. I'm going to start, I'm going to stop using months and start using years because now we're pretty yeah. much here, two yeah. years. Uh, the fact that we haven't done that, I mean, we, we collect data from people. I, I don't, under, people are like, you don't understand it's in a hospital. I'm like, look, I'm talking about why they were admitted. You know why they were admitted. You ask them why they were admitted. Yeah. Did they admit it for a broken leg or a pregnancy or a hysterectomy or an earache or something like that, that that isn't a typical COVID symptom? And are they later showing up on your COVID thing, yeah. you know, on your COVID roster? And just so um, everyone, to, to, to frame this for everybody, this is, uh, ho hospital admissions or deaths uh, from COVID or with COVID, whether that is the primary <clears throat> diagnosis that you ended up in the hospital or or the the cause of your fatality was the co was the virus, or you happen to be in the hospital for something else because everybody is, who's hospitalized gets tested. Did you later test positive for COVID? And this is such a basic fundamental data point that would inform so much and be so revealing uh, uh, and uh, of what we're staring at or. or the reality on the ground and yet i mean to my knowledge nobody really compiles it i think Not the even, uk is just start i saw yeah, the some UK graphs. Is just starting to i think so i just i'm like oh look at that you know yeah. blue and a red yeah. you know and how exciting and it was pretty stark <laughs> uh, the graph was pretty stark and, yep. and and what else you'll find is not just you know in something like omicron whereas if you look at someone across you know, across a football field, apparently they now have Omicron. Um, yeah. but, you know, with that level of hyperbole, you know, let's just say it's it, it's faster and it's it's faster. I mean, there's no question to me. You know, the trans you know the transmissibility yep, more of Omicron seems faster. Transmissible. And so when when you have this whoosh, where in a two week period, let's say, I mean, you could have a you know fifteen percent, twenty percent of an entire population that has Omicron that would have tested for positive on say any one of fourteen days. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to look at a base rate that's in the hospitalization saying how many people are normally hospitalized in the winter mm -hmm. and now add to the people that weren't in the COVID, you have to add 10 or 20% to that yeah. or whatever it is. And the kids, it, it may be more because they're not hospitalized that much, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in general, I mean, kids are hospitalized at lower rates pre-COVID, you know, yeah, the, except the base for certain rate. things in a normal year for hospitalization of, of youth or young people, just not high. Right. right. So you have to and work so off of that. You have these tiny numbers of, of youth that are hospitalized, but it's, it's something it's X. Let's say in a big city, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you have 500 kids that are hospitalized over the course of X weeks, you know, all of a sudden, if, if a very small amount of that was for COVID, but then 20% of people have detectable SARS CoV-2 in their nose, mm -hmm. uh, the kids are going to show that percentage jump in a real, yeah. real way, because if, you know, if their percentage of hospitalizations for COVID was already scant mm -hmm. and that triples or quadruples because of a background rate in the, in the population, it yeah. looks a lot worse than if the COVID rate was, you know, 10% of people were in for COVID and that went up to, you know, whatever it was, the, you mm -hmm. know, but it was a high number. And so the absolute numbers work out such that the percentages change. And it always looks like at the start of every wave, they go, this yeah. one's for the kids. Every wave, <laughs> the first the first four weeks of every wave, this one's for the kids. It's been yeah. every single time. And, and nobody seems to learn their lesson from that. It's it's right. quite astonishing. Right. And so, okay. So are, from what you've seen, 
the observation, the, the kind of on the geographic curve, the early observations from the data in South Africa, um, is that leave, is that informing the same, is that leaving you with the same observations from what you're seeing? It's caught on a few week lag from some of the places in, in the States that have been hit hard. It, it is. It is. I, I worry more about our, you know, our, our deaths have kind of remained stubbornly high. We're a you know, we could be a fairly old population uh, as compared mm-hmm. to some others. That's a big difference between us and South Africa. Only 5.5% of South Africa's population is north of 65. Mm-hmm. We're three mm-hmm. times that. That and changes another, every, Yeah, another everything. interesting point in, in trying to reconcile or determine, uh, let's call it quality. Listen, it, it, it shouldn't. we shouldn't be sitting here trying to blame, uh, assign blame as to who handled COVID well and who didn't handle COVID well. But one factor that, that not nearly enough people seem to account for is the age of the population, right? This is not mildly stratified, the risk of COVID. It's not like uh, the the risk uh, if you're 70 years old as opposed to 25 years old is, you know, by a factor of even two, three or four, something like a factor of 21, right? Or even higher than that. Maybe higher, higher, right? And so if you look at the data and if you're trying to judge who is balancing out the interests of, of COVID restrictions and balancing out trying to maintain normal social and economic activity with positive health outcomes if you're not you if you're if you're not factoring in age of the population how is that analysis supposed to have any quality whatsoever and it's a lot in in the kind of seminal california florida debate and like florida's got a lot of old people like all right you know for for the first 17 months of covid when florida was for the most part tracking better than california it was kind of astonishing right it was and and to try to criticize it was difficult if not impossible if you were being honest to find fault in in florida's handling of it and then they had that massive quick but it was only really about six weeks delta spike and now it seems to have skewed the numbers and driven florida into the top 10 of deaths but if you're accounting for age of the population all of a sudden they don't they don't look so bad if you're if you're uh, population age adjusted california and florida are still pretty much landing at about the same spot that's right. I believe they're both in that kind of 17 to 20 range somewhere, every mm-hmm. time 22 range, somewhere in the meaty middle, if you will, yeah. of the United States for an age adjusted death rate. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, some states, some states, you know, make out better. You know, I mean, Texas actually has worse outcomes than you would think because it's a younger state than people realize that Texas, mm-hmm. I think, would be number, you know, number two or three. And, you know, that doesn't surprise me, you know, not to say Texas, but I'm from the South and you might mm-hmm. detect a slight accent, but, uh, my, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad was a 20 year military guy. We moved all over, spent more time in the South than anywhere else. He was a mm-hmm. born and raised Georgia boy. And, you know, I've always had a touch of an accent, but I grew up with people in the South. If you said at the very beginning of COVID that everyone's going to do everything equal in every similar possible confluence of population. Mm-hmm. And you just look at, you know, at, at death, by age and death by obesity, you know, those two things, you know, I mean, age is clearly the number one stratification. I mean, the age is just a huge, huge, yep. you, know, you, you have to do by age too, a little too hard to do by, I understand. I don't want that data. People trying to parse out, well, this city's actually only 16% obese. And mm-hmm. I, I get that it's a little <laughs> it's more a difficult one. to do. Um, but, you know, the Southeast with, you know, we're just not the healthiest people. I mean, that's where I'm mm-hmm. from. Those are my people. We know what we eat. We know we're bigger. <laughs> yeah. We know it. The Southeast was going to come out in the bottom of this thing. If all else equal, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. on the death side of the house. That's just the awful truth about that. Yeah. The Southeast was probably going to come out in the bottom, the Gulf Coast, you know, Panhandle. I mean, this is where all the, you know, that you got bigger people. It's just, it's a, you know, just a reality. It's just, it's just yeah. reality. It's just you know, a reality. The Northeast, especially kind of the New England, very healthy, you know, very healthy. You know, Utah health is one of the best states, very healthy mm-hmm. state. You got, you know, the, the LDS, you know, people, they live a healthier they live a healthier life. You know, they do, they don't drink like I do. You know what I mean? (laughs) They're not as obese as people in the South. Then, you know, and so with age and obesity, you know, the South was never going to be Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. You know, they just were not no way, no how not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And these types of, and once again, it's about, we have to conduct a multivariant analysis. Too many people try to analyze things based on a single variable, like cases, like hospitalizations, like deaths. It's like, and even you start expanding the data points, right? To two, three, four, you're still not quite there. And that I think is the, it's, it's really maddening to see people continue to make these mistakes and trying to judge uh, judge results and who did right, who did what right, and who did what wrong by by these single variables. It's it's very frustrating. But you know, an, uh, another one now that you mentioned some of the Nordic countries, and that I think that uh, when the story and looking back as as the story of the coronavirus and the pandemic is told, that this is one, this is going to be one chapter in the book, and that chapter is Sweden. Um, Sweden, as I like to call it, became the Spanish Civil War. Of co- much like Florida has been the Spanish Civil War in the United States, Sweden is kind of the Spanish Civil War of COVID internationally. And what I mean by that is that's where it, it was an outlier. Um, it was an outlier territory that everybody that that because it took a different approach, everybody got to play out their biases and run their simulation on right. That it, to just back up in case anyone's unfamiliar, Sweden was pretty much the only country in the Western world that, that to my knowledge, that did not lock down at all. Um, essentially, the the entire rest of the Western world was locked down, but Sweden said no lockdowns and balancing out uh, the interests of maintaining normalcy and economic health and social activity versus health risks. We believe that uh, that the, the lockdowns will not work. And essentially, their observation was the pain is inevitable and the virus is going to virus is that you cannot really stop the spread of uh, an airborne respiratory virus. So it was a given the the likelihood of infection triggering some sort of immune response, if not perfect, then a pretty strong immune response, that it was better to smooth things out and allow the virus to circulate at least at certain, you know, with certain restrictions or certain uh, um uh, tactics to to reduce it, but th- th- this was all inevitable, and we were in this for you know a year or two, and better to take the pain up front than to space it out. And it's hard, if not impossible, at this point, once you zoom out and look at the last two years, to that their approach to not have validated their approach because got everyone stopped talking about Sweden. You want to know why? They haven't had a day with more than seven COVID deaths since June. Once again. Since June, that's six months now. If you look at the death curve, COVID's pretty much been done in Sweden for six months. And if everyone wants to attribute that to vaccination, I'm sorry you can't because the vaccine had not, there wasn't much vaccine prevalence at that point, maybe 20, 30% of the population. In validating Sweden's approach and then also indicting it, or at least the the weaknesses of it, um, can we see? And it's it's nearly impossible to... uh, 
it's impossible to take away anything other than that their approach of of this being inevitable and the quicker that you accept the pain the quicker you'll be over this um that that thesis turned out to be true now my the way i look at it is that was this replicable for other larger western nations such as the united states no not necessarily because we have yes larger population two uh unhealthier population three older population and for a more neurotic population that was not going to accept that approach it, it, it was going to lead to too much look at how much internal strife and division we already experienced it was going to lead to more more division so both the people who say the u.s should have replicated that approach are incorrect but also if you if you were critical of sweden's approach and and uh accepting that the virus is going to virus that hurt you know, that that aiming towards herd immunity in a measured way is probably uh, is a shrewd approach you also have to wrestle with the fact that sweden has not had any real sizable amount of deaths from covid in six months like you cannot tell the story of this pandemic without acknowledging that fact and i think you know that's uh, i wrapped up all my thoughts on sweden in one little monologue there but craig i would love to hear your thoughts and what you've seen from sweden and what you think the lessons are to learn from it yeah it's I want to start with a broad point, which is that the COVID story is told. It's it's probably a ten year story. The the story, maybe even twenty. Interesting, because you because you know, and, and not even cases and deaths. It's the reverberations from the actions you took, how that affects, let's say, people who are right now three, four, five, six, seven years old. How that affects them as teenagers. How that affects mm -hmm. them going into adulthood. Um, you know, how, you know, how much trust or lack of trust do we have in our public institutions mm -hmm. um, over a one or two or five year span? Does it continue in, in 10 or 20? There's certainly more in Europe than there is here. Europe's in, in general is a little bit more willing than the U.S. to kind of tug at the edges and go, well, let's space out the vaccine or, you know, we're not going to mask the youngest kids or we'll change mm -hmm. that. We start to get a once the throttles up. Anything pulling back is weakness. Anything off my yeah. point is weakness. It's political yeah. weakness, and I will be attacked. And so, you know, when I'm assessing the success or failure of, of any country's approach, it's not necessarily the number of deaths accumulated between January 2020 and June 2022. If that ends up being the main window of, of mm -hmm. overall deaths from, you know, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and all its all its many iterations all one yep. thing so you know i you know i'm um i live in the land of you know second third and fourth order effects i mean I, mm -hmm. like you said you you introduced me as a fighter pilot technically i am a fighter backseater called a wizzo uh i flew in the backseat <laughs> of an f-15e strike eagle don't want to don't want to you know tread on my my front seat brothers and sisters who i mean we're no all you know, we're all one team we're good we're good folks and i love uh you know, I follow, I've got friends on, on Twitter who are, you know, my old F-15 friends and we keep up, but, you know, we have, to, we don't get to worry about who we kill with our bomb. You know, mm -hmm. if, it, if it came to that, if you got to save the good guys on the ground and it's really close and you have to, you don't just get to drop a bomb to stop someone from shooting. It's not that, that, that the mm -hmm. decision is not that. What are the second order effects of this bomb? But physically, how about that first? And what are the buildings around? How many kids? How many women? Any? Mm -hmm. We may not be able to drop. Maybe you have to pull back. Okay. What are the third order effects of the bomb? How likely is that village going to be to work with us in the future if we did this big bomb for a couple guys that were shooting? I mean, this 
what's the fourth order effects? What is the political landscape of this bomb being mm-hmm. dropped, landing in the pages of, you know, the New York Times or something? It just doesn't stop with the push of a pickle button. And we mm-hmm. knew that, you know, as people flying in the air, we were, we were, you know, very discerning about, and we, you know, the, the rules of war, you know, law of armed conflict, our rules of engagement, our special instructions that we had in theater, all took into a, took this into effect. That is gone in the media, political reality, reality yeah. in which we live now. Anything beyond the next election is a horizon that does not exist for ninety eight percent of the people who create the the tides that we ride upon. That's just and the narratives, the yeah. And so, yeah. with all that as a backdrop, my take on Sweden will, you know, will maybe subject to change. Um, but you know, from they didn't just do a let it rip. They didn't pack cities into, mm-hmm. into you know, big indoor things and say breathe in each other's faces they had for some five restrictions. days and then yeah. we'll wheel you out. You know, they, exactly as you said. I mean, you said it before. They they had some, it was tiered restrictions. You know, they protecting the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still mind blowing how many people that are in kind of long term care. You know, how much the deaths used to get a long term care palliative care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the very end of life, the death toll is still heavily skewed toward that, mm-hmm. you know, even worldwide. I mean, there's a lot of that. And so obviously Sweden, you know, tried to take this into account. They said, you know, we're going to, you know, other than that, we're not going to affect life too much. And, you know, the, the results are fantastic when viewed in this big, you know, big bell curve, if you will, of let's say Western countries, if you want to do that writ large. Well, yeah, um, and just balancing out the interests of, of health results and disruption to the population at, at large. And it's like, oh, now all of a sudden that Omicron is in, infecting everyone. And so all the people that thought that they had made, had attained some moral accomplishment by not getting infected, now they no longer have that. So now they can acknowledge cost-benefit analysis and a balancing of interests and, tr- uh, and, try and the value of not disrupting life for all the people who aren't going to be severely impacted health-wise by COVID. So now they they can, in, in, I think, and that's one of the points that you're getting to in terms of when the story of COVID is told, how are we going to tell it and what are the chapters going to look like? And Sweden seems to, Sweden's story seems to have turned out, per, if not perfect, pretty damn well. And a lot of people don't want to wrestle with that. When I saw, I, I think I saw stat, and I'd have to confirm this, and uh, but I, I believe that Sweden's excess deaths starting in January 2020 or up until present day, excess deaths are minus 1700 uh, as compared That's to years wild. prior. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that they're overcounting COVID, but maybe, you know, I, whatever it is. And you know, honestly, they might be overcounting COVID because from what be. I've gathered, what I've gathered, their methodology for, for assessing COVID deaths actually does lend to overcounting in terms of, of chalking up deaths with COVID to deaths to, from COVID. So they, they might be, their story might actually be brighter than, than we even think. Right. And, you know, excess deaths is going to be a good measure. There's going to have to be some teasing out of that data, you know, that mm-hmm. everyone knows the phrase lies, damn lies and statistics. It's so unbelievably true. If I wanted to go all out grift on Twitter a mm-hmm. year and a half ago, could have done it whichever way I could have done yeah. it on the right or the left, I done whichever data. you wanted. I could have sold you whatever bill of goods you wanted me to sell you. I could have made the numbers work. The numbers mm-hmm. would have been accurate. There would have been enough nudges. Just the conclusions you draw, there are enough confounders in all the data that you can draw. You can say, well, they didn't do 
X like this. Mm-hmm. Had they done X, this would have been lower. And, you know, we've got Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland. We'll compare with only those and not with mainland Europe. We'll, we'll yeah, and I want to make an, it's an important point right there is, is lying with data that it's not that difficult to present only accurate data, but still do it to drive a, a false conclusion or implication. And that's what a lot of people right. will do. You know, what's what is going to start happening, what is already happening to a little extent is you talked about age stratifying COVID deaths. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. To me, essential to me, you have to know, you know, if you're going to do it and if we're going to play the game of all oh, they did 0.07 per 100,000 better. So they did everything better. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a silly game to play. But if you know, if you're going to play the game, you have to age adjust the deaths. No doubt. It makes sense. You've got to do it with vaccinations, too, by the way. There are people who are quite against vaccinations who were looking, you know, we're presenting raw vaccination mm-hmm. uh, per 100,000 incidence rates. And you're going vaccinated people in the hospital per 100,000 unvaccinated people in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everywhere that's showing the data, the unvaccinated in the hospital are higher and the unvaccinated in the deaths are higher per 100,000. That may eventually start to change because the vaccinated people are really old and eventually it's going to get to a point if you imagine a mythical land if you would where everyone in this land is over 75 and vaccinated and everyone in the other land is under 25 and unvaccinated Mm -hmm. there's no chance that the under 25 is going to have more deaths from covid than the over 75 vaccinated it's not going to be close it's going to be an absolute walk-off because the, the the mortality rate is so low and what you have is vaccinations are skewed older yeah and so you know, a lot of these people that were vaccinated, some of them, you know, they got vaccinated there. It's just going to, you know, make it, them maybe have a better chance if you're 87 and have 18 other conditions. They're I'm still sorry. highly There's susceptible. Be, you know, yeah. And, and so the point will eventually come. No doubt. And the point that point that you're making and, you know, uh, listen, I'm not vaccine skeptical, but I'm just such I'm so anti mandate that some you know, a lot of people who are very vaccine skeptical follow me and just a lot of people who are vaccine skeptical guys don't don't do that cheap move where you look at just the the percentage of vax of vaccinated people who have died or been infected versus the percentage of unvaccinated people if an over if the there's a higher overall amount of people who were vaccinated you're gonna get higher raw numbers right and they're the the data is gonna be skewed in that direction so guys try look examine your own biases and that's part of what this conversation was about and what what why Craig has been someone who a lot of people have have sought out as a source uh, around these issues on Twitter. Um, examine your own biases. See, wait, am, am I misusing data? Am I cherry picking data points? And because there's a temptation for everyone to do it. Um, and and it's we're all going to be better off if we don't. And if there's some things that support a conclusion that was contrary to the one that you had that you had in your mind previously, don't be you can't be afraid if we're going to if, if we're going to I don't think it's been a the story of covid for the US so far hasn't been pretty if we're going to try to make it a brighter picture everybody's got to do their part to also be be honest in in how they analyze data and how they argue with their buddies make your points in your group chats and the stuff you put on social media um so if any if you, anyone can if there's a takeaway from this conversation I hope it's that and also uh I just in in, in kind of framing why we had this discussion is just also go you guys have heard craig right and you can go to his his twitter handle which is the lawyer craig and you know give it to you again in just a second but take a look and go look at the way he presents data and then compare it 
to what you've seen from all these mainstream sources and give an honest, am I getting a deeper and more comprehensive look at data from this guy who's just a lawyer on Twitter or am I getting it from these the sources that are supposedly as their operating principles supposed to be interpreting the universe for us. And I think it's, it's very telling, but I also hope that this conversation was informative on why you might see better work from Craig or how you can, or myself and how you can kind of do this analysis on your own and also understanding why the suspicions that have grown around the media and around the mainstream sources have grown. And and hopefully this, this was kind of a peek under the hood as opposed to just a kind of really um, um, nebulous, like anti-media missive. We want people to understand why the media might be failing, not just that they're failing. So that's my message. Craig, in, uh, in, in any mess, any, any thoughts there in sign off? No, it's, I'll add that's, it's in warm, comfortable blanket. It's a great place. You, you can live in honest data and support your, there, there's enough honest data there to support your side of the house. I'm not yep. a mandate. I've never been a mandate guy. I think they're short-sighted. I think they're going to be bad long-term. I think they won't make much of an effect. There's, there's a number of reasons that I could go into for an entire another hour that of course we won't, but you could have your position. You can seed ground. It gives you such credibility. It's just yeah. so easy to not have to kind of play the winky game mm -hmm. uh, to make your point. And, um, you know, there's, they end up being stronger points for it. So yeah, I mean, seek out good data and you can present, I, I'm an optimistic guy. I tend to present data more optimistically than I necessarily have to. I could report it a little more doom and gloom. I like a mm -hmm. bit of humor. I like a bit of, you know, a little bit of drinking whiskey and, and, and whatever. Yeah. You, you don't have to be a morose person just because you're reporting data. Just because yeah. you're trying to be objective. Right. You can be objective and optimistic and tell people, look, I'm, I'm looking at this optimistically. I'm seeing these good numbers. Sure, it could change. But right now, you know, that is. Like yeah, absolutely. We, we, we will sign off with an optimistic look for the Omicron uh, virus to be highly transmissible. A lot of people are going to get the sniffles, be sick for a few days, but a lot, lot less in the hospital, a lot less with toe tags. And hopefully this will be kind of uh, 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 hopefully we are or towards, you know, at worst, the bottom of the eighth inning of this thing. Um, Craig cannot thank you enough for all of your one, all of your work in trying to bring people good data and a healthy, clean perspective for joining us today. And um, yeah, like I said, hopefully uh, epidemiological analysis of the spread of COVID will not be an issue starting in a few months. But to the extent it is, you know, we, we hope you come back and join us. And if there's more data to analyze, you know, we, we'd love to have that conversation. So once again, you know, I want to thank you for your time and, and sharing your perspective here. It's coming up on the new year. I hope you and yours have a great one cannot tell you how much it means to me that you've kind of joined us and, and have participated in this podcast during its first few episodes as as we ramp up towards the end of 2021. Um, we're going to have a lot of incredible stuff and really hit, hit the gas in 2022. So please, once again, uh, you guys know where to find me on, on my socials on the internet uh, at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. If you have feedback, suggestions, you love it, you hate it, anything. You just want to wish me a happy new year. Please do not hesitate to send a message. Uh, thank you very much once again for joining us and happy new year. 
I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.